what happened is I woke up to two and a half months later with no idea where I was. When I was in the coma, some people will say, oh, you can be cognizant of the space around you. But there was like this entire other alternate reality that was playing out, which was mostly pretty horrible. When Margie got there, she walked in the door and she got the long flowing clothes and she had her little spritzes of hydrosols and oils and tinctures. And I can swear that I heard one of the nurses at the nurse's station say to the other, oh, his witches are back. Welcome to Pacific Rim College Radio, a podcast sharing stories and wisdom from experts in the fields of holistic wellness and sustainable living. I am your host, Todd Howard, coming to you from Ravenhill Herb Farm, a permaculture design campus of Pacific Rim College in Victoria, British Columbia. As the show's guests demonstrate, by doing small acts to embrace more mindful living, we can positively impact our communities. Surviving at the edge is something that herbalist Jim McDonald is no stranger to. From finding a passion for herbs in the Michigan woods and letting plants be his original teachers, to waking up from a months-long coma that left him with amnesia, he has not walked the middle road very often. In this episode, Jim shares the harrowing illness and experience in a foreign country that by most accounts should have killed him. His survival is a tribute to the strength of his will and the power of integrative medicine, as Western medicine alongside herbal and spiritual therapies proved indispensable in his recovery. A passionate teacher and practitioner of herbalism, Jim guides us through his fondness for the Greek humors, the crafting of his career as a herbalist, how plants have been some of his most powerful teachers, and his style of clinical practice. His unique approach to herbalism blends traditional European folk perspectives with eclectic physiomedical approaches of 19th century American herbalism. Jim is an incredible visual teacher And even though you cannot see him during this interview, you will not soon forget his clever use of balloon props. With his intuitive knowledge of plants and zeal for life and humor, he is a rare human carving his own path and honing his craft. Please enjoy this episode of Pacific Rim College Radio with Jim McDonald. Jim, welcome to Pacific Rim College Radio. Hey, how are you doing? I'm great, thank you. It's good to see you. Yeah, it just started getting kind of like warm here in Michigan. And so like we're starting to, I mean, most of the snow has melted by me and we're starting to see like the early green stuff poking up. So it's pretty exciting time. Now, snow's still a possibility there though, isn't it? Yes, we could get, we could get inches more at any point in time, but everyone's being pretty optimistic. We actually had a pretty light year this year. We got like one major dump, but otherwise it, it hasn't been super cold or super snowy but i think that um because everyone's been stuck in their house like so much more you know because of the pandemic that people are feeling winter here as if it's been worse than it was got it well i want to thank margie flint who recommended i reach out to you and she had some very complimentary things to say about you you know she said that you are the smartest and funniest person she knows, or you're the smartest, funniest person, or the funniest, smartest person. It was something, I think it was a combination of those things. All right, that works. I'll I'll take what I can get. (laughs) It was very flattering, yes. And so thank you for agreeing to come on the podcast. Oh, it's it's a pleasure. I'm always happy to talk plants. 
So you and Margie have worked together, right? Talked yeah, together. I met I met Margie. I don't know how many years ago. I was at the Internet Herb Symposium, and I believe it was uh, a really wonderful herbalist named Kate Gilday, who I was trying to talk to, and she was like, "Oh my gosh, I'm running. I'm late for a class. Um, here's Margie. You guys will love each other." And um, that was pretty much what happened. So uh, Kate Gilday was foresighted. And we just got along really easy. And um, I've had her out to teach. She's had me out to teach, um, uh, I guess, several times now. Um, I, there's you know, uh, stuff that I've contributed to the latest edition of her book and um, applied as, as much as I can wrap my head around of the uh, you know, the diagnosis stuff that she's so skilled at. So, um, yeah, every time I get to see Margie is a, is a great time. Now, I was thinking to that interview that I did with her, and she told a story, I think, about a trip to Scotland where <laughs> someone got sick and nearly died. And then I thought, wait a minute, that was you, wasn't it? That was absolutely me. Uh, and Margie came out there. I mean, it was... So I would say that almost dying... Um, I imagine that there's a variety of ways it can, it can, um, the almost part that it can pan out, you know, it can be, um, inspiring or it can be fear inducing or trauma inducing. And I, I find that it's kind of all of them. Um, I know that we're all eventually gonna, to keel over, but I, I honestly, like my experience was pretty horrible. Honestly, like that would be the way that I would describe it. Um, and there's just, you know, lingering amounts of stuff that I'm dealing with. And I'm able to carry on and, you know, go out hiking for the day and teach and everything like that. But I've not so much from the the weird congenital heart thing that ended up happening, but the um, the coma that I was in for like about two months, maybe a little bit over two months. And then um, just being down and stuck horizontal for that time has had kind of a uh, unfortunate impact on my nerves and uh, I can be a little bit like glitchy cognition wise. So there's definitely some like lingering after effects of that that I'm not too happy about. Um, and I can feel really frustrated by, especially sometimes when I'm teaching. Um, I remember it was the year afterwards and I was doing my course and, you know, we'd done this whole class on the urinary system and I was like, oh, I'm doing, you know, it was like, I hadn't, you know, that before the pandemic, that was like the longest break I'd ever had between teaching, like all these months and months and months of no classes. And so I felt kind of like rusty and out of the swing of things. And I didn't schedule as much the following year, but I was doing this class on the urinary system. I was like, I'm doing pretty good. And then someone asked about like, we were talking about gout and they're like, well, what are the kind of causes of gout? And, and I was like, oh, it's, and I just couldn't pull stuff up in that moment, which was really like, I think for any teacher, like, you know, um, and I'm not someone who, who keeps notes on hand, right? I just know a bunch of stuff and I, I get steered to be at this place at a certain time and then I talk about it for a while. Um, and I just, I couldn't pull it up. It was super frustrating. And uh, that happens may, maybe a little bit less, but you know, there's definitely some glitchy cognitive stuff and some nerve lingering nerve dysfunction and, you know, just sort of, uh, dealing with the 
like I would say I, I everything kind of started at, at the end of my stay in Ireland. And if people were to ask me like, well, how were you feeling in Ireland? My honest answer would be like, I felt great in Ireland. I mean, it felt awesome. Um, you know, I was staying with this awesome herbalist named Colleen Kennedy. Um, I taught at the Herb Feast. It was awesome. There were all these great people. I was enjoying myself. I got to sit for a couple hours in this awesome mobile sauna. As you get the picture, everything was awesome. And then, um, you know, like a few days later, like, you know, I had this like horrible, severe, rare uh, cardiac thing happen. And one of the things that that's done that's kind of like, you know, played games with my mind is people will ask me, they're like, how are you feeling? You know, how do you, how do you feel now? Are you feeling good? And I think like, you know, on a given day, I might feel, you know, pretty good or, you know, better, worse. But then I think like, oh, but that doesn't matter because I was feeling great before all of this started, you know? So it really puts like this kind of wild card. And I guess what that leaves me with is like, uh, an awareness, uh, a really keen awareness of the uncertainty of life, you know, and, you know, the continuation of life. But, you know, also like still like this deep appreciation for, you know, like, oh, I got this extra time, you know, and uh, it's kind of like inspiring and humbling and traumatic and all the different stuff mixed together. So when I think back about it, you know, I'm like, yeah, it was really horrible oh, there were some things that were really incredible about it. You know, one of the things that happened is there was a, a very successful fundraiser that happened that got my family, because I was obviously across the ocean. Um, they got my family out to me and, you know, took care of like all of their sudden and dramatic expenses just to get out to where I was. Um, and being the recipient of that level of care has made me think a lot about like giving and receiving care and how I think for a lot of herbalists, we're in some ways a little bit better at, you know, giving care than receiving it. Sometimes, you know, we, we I think by nature have a uh, strong caretaking instinct. And um, because of the nature of the study, it's very self-motivated and um, self-determined and we, tend to know more stuff than, you know, the people around us um, in our immediate family and community. And so we often think like, oh, I'll take care of other people and I'll take care of myself. And so receiving, you know, like this immense amount of care from the community at large was like, I, I still don't know if I entirely know how to like respond to that. It was kind of like overwhelming um, and like gratifying and something that I really hope, uh, because obviously I'm not the only herbalist who ever has some kind of health crisis, you know, that I think that um, one of the things that struck me is that there were a lot of really modest donations that were affordable to most people that, that really added up. And I, I always think when I hear of other people who are diagnosed with, you know, um, different challenging things that are going to be very expensive and a lot of us don't have amazing health insurance that, uh, that model of like being like, hey, there's a member of my community, someone who's, you know, chosen to take this on this profession that doesn't have, you know, awesome healthcare with awesome benefits and low deductibles. And if a lot of people give a modest amount, it can really make significant changes and help them and their families out. Yeah, the generosity of others can be is extremely uplifting. Were you 
cognizant during this situation that you were potentially going to die? Um, so I, I have to say that it's what exactly happened is a little bit uncertain and I don't think anyone knows for sure. And I've seen like, well, I've actually heard from various doctors when I was in Scotland, once I started to be um, lucid, which, which took a while after I quote unquote woke up, um, is that everyone had a different like idea of what happened. You know, so some people say like, oh, you had a heart attack and as a side effect of the heart attack, what happened is um, a hole opened up in the septum between the ventricles and it started pumping unoxygenated blood into your body. And then slowly over time, you started to go into organ failure, multiple organ failure. Um, what other doctors said is like, oh, you probably had this congenital septal defect, which ruptured, and then that is what precipitated everything else. So there's a little bit of a chicken in the egg. And I don't, you know, I don't know that there's any way of, of knowing what thing preceded the other. Um, the only real symptom that I have that I can remember is that I got a rapid heartbeat, which was something that happened at the end of my time in Ireland. And then like uh, the end of my time in Ireland was like getting over a conference, you know, staying at this uh, really cool herbalist named Ross Hennessy's house. Hope I said his last name right. Um, at the time they were bare root botanicals, awesome plants. Um, and then getting up early, getting on a train to go into Dublin, staying at uh, someone's place and then getting on a flight to go to Scotland. And in all of that rush and everything, I was like, you know, oh, you know, as soon as I'm not rushing around this, this rapid heartbeat, this tachycardia will probably go away. It's something that my mom often got, you know, uh, and wasn't uh, an indicator of something potentially fatal. Uh, and when I got to Scotland and I thought to myself like, oh, cool, I'm here. I have a flat. I don't have anything to do for a few days. I can just like take a nap and chill out. And it was after I woke up from that nap and it was still happening that I thought to myself, oh, I totally want, don't want to go to a hospital, but I should get this looked at because I had to teach the next weekend. And what, um, what happened is I, I woke up like two, two and a half months later, you know, with no idea where I was or what I was happening. Actually, um, and the only person I know who's had like legit amnesia, um, when I first woke up, I couldn't remember anything that had happened from like the end of October, 2017, is like June of 2018. And so wow. slowly some of that stuff has come back. Um, when I was in the coma, it was like, some people will say like, oh, you can be like cognizant of the space around you, but there was like this entire other alternate reality um, that was playing out, which was mostly pretty horrible because I think that while, um, you know, they're doing all these things to, to save your life and, and keep you alive, most of it is kind of torturous. And so your body needs to sort of explain, you know, what's happening uh, around you and when things like being on a, a ventilator are really just dreadful. Um, there's not like a happy, you know, explanation for why that's happening. So uh, I, you know, woke up, I think sometime in June, um, I was still going through, in, in fact, when Margie was there, like I, I was, when Margie was there, it's actually when I first started to have like some lucid moments, but they were interspersed for like easily another two weeks with just completely like, 
delusional um, ICU delirium. And so it was a it was a pretty horrible, honestly, it was just a pretty horrible experience. That is incredible. And two and two and a half months in a coma is wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, That's, I don't know everything what else looked, to say. I, I think that when I, when I, again, I started to get a little bit lucid, I remember like uh, someone, you know, brought me a, a phone that I could get on the internet with and uh, my hands were really shaky. They had a horrible tremor. And so like just trying to use it was extremely difficult. Um, but I eventually like found the GoFundMe page and I was reading the updates that uh, Thomas Easley was posting. And I was like, oh, that's bad. That's really, really bad. But I don't know that they were exactly like, I think as bad as things looked, um, what the expectation was among the medical professionals there was actually fairly worse. Mm. Well, what a credit to the medical system and Western medicine for yeah, I, helping I, you I, through that. I know that some people have a adversarial or sort of like condescending, you know, idea of that. And I just think like, well, you know, I, I don't know that I can quite uh, have that. I also feel oddly and maybe slightly ironically the same way as when people complain about social media and Facebook, you know, as being so, so terrible. I think like, oh, that's really the way that my, my wife and my kids were able to get over and, and, and be there, you know, right. They were like, hours and hours in an ocean away. And, uh, you know, I think that no one initially uh, knew that this was going to be like a, a three some odd month long, you know, experience. Yeah. So Western medicine definitely was played a pivotal role in your recovery. And then when Margie came over, I, I think she brought some of her herbal magic how much did herbal medicine and how much has it continued to play in your recovery? So, you know, um, there may be, and, you know, I always think that as, as much as, as important as prevention is, but there may be something to be said for, uh, you know, the, the fact that the odds were so bad and I'm still here, which uh, I've had cardiologists like tell the story to other cardiologists who look like wide-eyed and shocked, like, wait a minute, and he's sitting right there? Um, you know, it, there's, there's probably good reason to think that like the overall state of resilience that I had going into this is why I'm still around. So there's that, um, you know, obviously I'm taking uh, a whole bunch of awesome cardiac trophy restoratives and all that. When, when Margie got there, you know, she couldn't necessarily because of the, the state and the conditions do stuff, uh, much stuff internally, but, you know, she did a lot of body work and had oils and stuff like that. Um, and there was uh, one time, and, and for people who know Margie, this will be uh, an even funnier story. Um, one time I had been moved from the ICU to this other ward. And uh, I think it was maybe like the third day that Margie was there and she had her little spritzes of hydrosols and oils and um, tinctures and she was doing them to the four directions. And she like walked in the door and she got the long flowing clothes. And I, I can swear that I heard one of the nurses at the nurses station say to the other, oh, his witches are back. <laughs> so there, there was uh, a lot of that. Um, I, uh, I couldn't speak more than a whisper from uh, 
having the, the tube down my throat and I was able to get uh, the two herbalists there, um, Joseph Nolan and Emma Rowe, who I was supposed to teach for, I guess I owe them a class. I, I sometimes think that like I'm the highest maintenance teacher ever. Um, <laughs> I win that Probably. award. I win that award. Um, but I had them bring me some calamus root and um, really it was shortly after chewing the calamus root, I could talk again um, enough that people would hear me. Uh, hmm. um, let's see, what else did I have there? You know, um, as amazing as the, oh, people brought me like good food and um, some, some prickly ash for my nerves and, you know, uh, different stuff. But um, as amazing as the heroic emergency care of the hospital was, you know, I have to say that, you know, when it got to like after that and there were issues like decent food and, uh, um, you know, like good nutrition and that sort of like support, you know, like the, the support and nourishment is where the, the medical system there had, had gaping holes. And it's the same here, you know, yeah. um, I had people one time, a nurse was like, you're, I, I'm concerned that you're not eating your food. I'm like, I'm not eating your food. I'm having people bring me food. <laughs> um, nope. I want to get better here, not worse. Yeah, so it it made a whole lot. Um, you know, I I am sometimes frustrated when I think about, like, oh, I know other people who've had you know nerve issues with impaired sensation, like I have, and I've given them stuff and they've gotten better, and I'm taking stuff and I've not gotten. I, there's been improvement, but I've not gotten you know all the way better, um, and that's again, frustrating, but I'm also here and, you know, it's going to be like three years, I guess, this spring. And that's three years I've had with my wife and children and friends and, you know, animals. Um, I have ferrets again, so that's, ferrets. that's good too. Yeah. What do you, what do you do with ferrets? Uh, ferrets just kind of roam the house and are these wild, um, barely domesticated animals that, are just inspiring to me okay they really if you've ever been around them they're they're like ridiculous creatures um but so clever and they just make me they're good medicine they make me happy and they're related to mink aren't they yeah they're they're very uh similar to mink a little bit bigger uh probably you know domesticated semi-domesticated from the european pole cat okay that whole family of animals is just really cool we occasionally get a family of mink passing through our farm and they are vicious things. Yeah. Are, are well, ferrets quite as vicious? The ferrets are not vicious. Um, they like their, their uh, animal relations. They don't really have any fear, you know? So we also just recently got a new puppy, uh, an Australian cattle dog. And, you know, the cats are like, oh, what is this new thing here? Even though we had an old dog, but um, they're like, what is this new thing here? And they're all apprehensive. And the ferrets are just like, well, oh, there's a new thing here, whatever. <laughs> it doesn't affect us. We have no sense of like, there's this bigger animal that wants to jump on us. I've seen a mink. I have two guardian, livestock guardian dogs. They're both well over, over 150 pounds. And I've seen a mink on the other side of a fence from them stand off to them though and stand up on its hind legs and just like hiss and scream at them with the dogs two inches away barking it's like wow those when, things are not scared of anything when i was in ireland i was uh 
talking with some people there like in the evening after the uh, one of, I think after the Saturday of the conference and we were sitting around the, the mobile sauna and you know we were talking about animals and someone mentioned badgers and I mentioned in Michigan we had these wolverines and they're like what's a wolverine isn't that the superhero thing and I was like no it's like <laughs> imagine imagine a badger the size of like a small bear and nobody there believed they all thought that I was joking there could be no such thing and I'm like oh yeah like, there is <laughs> are those fairly unique to the Michigan area or do they roam throughout the U.S. Um, they're in wolverines are in different parts of the U.S. More in Canada. There used to be one down in what's called the thumb of Michigan because we have the mitten-shaped state, um, and that one passed away. And that was considered to be a very unlikely experience to have um, them that far south. Um, but into Canada, I believe into you know the the northern U.S. Uh, is where you would find them. I'm not quite sure how far west they go. Are they quite rare? They're quite rare. It's unusual to see them, you know, okay. but they're kind of like considered one of the, the most um, uh, ferocious predators, you know, like, like you were saying about the dogs that I've seen documentaries where wolverines will like scare off bears from their prey, Wow. you know, or a pack of wolves. They're like, oh, no, one of those. <laughs> we can't. Like, and I, again, I think a part of that is that that particular animal family just doesn't like really seem to be afraid of things that are bigger than it and i think that a lot of predators expect that the things that they eat when they see them are going to try and like run and get away and not like stand up to them and growl yeah well look i feel like we could talk about animals and all sorts of things for a while but i'm sure a lot of people tuned in to talk a bit about herbs going back to your your illness and your time in the uk you were in the UK because you're a sought after herbalist and you were there mm -hmm. to teach. How did you get to that place where you're able to travel the world as a around herbalist and teacher? So in 1994, five or six, I was in college and I lived on this old overgrown farmhouse and uh, uh, my roommate Jason had left out an herb book and um, this different things kind of converged at that moment. One, the herb book. Um, two, we were living on like an old over, overgrown 30 acre farm, you know, that had been neglected for a long time. So there's lots of weedy plants and there was a hardwood forest and a uh, red pine grove with some white pines mixed in and a swamp and a neglected field. Um, and I was also passing by the Beale Botanical Gardens at Michigan State University which had a bunch of plants that grew in our yard and little signs that said, you know, like burdock or nettle or whatever next to them. And so um, while, you know, I was in my, let's see, mid twenties at that time, well, I spent a lot of time in nature and I did, you know, hiking and canoeing and, you know, backpacking at that time. Um, I wasn't particularly into like plants per se, other than as being like a part of nature that I loved. Um, for some reason, um, I just got really interested in this book and I would, you know, be like, oh, it says we can use willow bark to make a tea for headaches. We have a willow tree on the yard. I'll just try and do that, you know. Oh, it says that, you know, um, 
nettles is good for this as a tea. I'll, there's nettles in the yard. I can go and like make tea with them and do that, you know, or like, oh, burdock root looks like it's good for like everything. And so I got a little small hand trowel and dug a gigantic hole to get most of a burdock root out and <laughs> chopped it up and made tea with it, you know, and kind of like sat and waited for something to happen. And I think that it was that engagement with it as being a connection to my place that really made it stick you know like i i don't know retrospectively like if i would have read a book and you know been buying like capsules of herbs or tea bags you know at that time it wasn't there wasn't a lot of tea available like alveda tea bags of herbs and doing that if i if it would have like engaged me so much um but the interaction with the the land that I was living on and the, the connection, you know, with my place that it engaged me in really just like struck a chord. I was also at the time I was going to college and, you know, writing music and, you know, working in radio, rock and roll radio stations. And um, one of the things that I found was that the people in um, that I would meet that were into those uh, industries were maybe not people that I would hang out with. Um, you know, there was a lot of ego and a lot of competition and a lot of superficiality. And the people that I met who were into the more earthy stuff and herbs and nature and everything were like, oh, I really rather spend time with these people. And it just slowly, like I, I learned more and learned more plants and made, started making, you know, not just teas, but syrups and oils and tinctures and all manner of stuff. Um, I had my my girl, then girlfriend, now wife, who, um, you know, was, was game to try stuff. Um, and uh, son of like a small group of friends who would like, let me make stuff for them and give it to them. And so it all was very like immediately applied knowledge rather than, um, I think that sometimes when people learn about herbs now, um, they think like, I need to know this and 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 this, and then I can start using herbs. And, you know, there's a lot to be said for not just like learning one thing about herb and using it recklessly. But um, I also think that, you know, learning about herbs is like learning about cooking. You don't learn like a bunch of head knowledge about cooking and then say like, I'm finally like, you know, it's been a couple of years I've been studying. I'm going to try to make an omelet, you know? <laughs> right. um, so what, what I did is I just kept making stuff and, um, there was a, a ecological center um, that I was involved with um, that would have fires. And what would happen um, frequently, you know, um, is people would be barefoot around the fire and someone would step on a coal and then someone would be like, hey, Jim, you know, and I would go out and pick whatever was in season at that time to like do a poultice on their burn. And it might have been uh, Monarda fistulosa, it might have been um, self heal, it might have been cinquefoil. Um, and they, this place did classes and um, I basically got nagged into teaching a class. You know, they're like, teach a class, teach a class, teach a class on herbs, teach a class. And I'm like, I don't know, I don't wanna be a teacher. Like that's never drawn to me. Um, but I got, you know, nagged into it. And the first class that I offered was like a seven hour herb walk, um, you know, where we walked around the, the grounds and just talked about the plants that grew there. And, um, I enjoyed doing it. There was a good response. And so I'm like, well, I did a spring walk. I guess I should do a summer and fall walk. And then, you know, they were again responded too well. So I'm like, I guess I should do a couple of classes. And so that started me off um, 
I guess initially teaching like every other month um, at this particular place. And then, you know, slowly as I was like, oh, hey, I'm, you know, I seem like I'm doing pretty good at this. People are enjoying the classes. I like doing them. Um, one of the things I, I realized is that I really like seeing people get turned on to herbs, right? Um, and I've continued to do sort of like these open community classes um, up until now. I, that's still something that I do. I know that uh, a lot of herbalists like get to a point where they just want to teach serious herbalists or people who want to be herb students and everything like that. And I, I of course, do that and like doing that. Um, but I, I get a kick out of whether it's like, uh, you know, a, a group of people that eat a certain way or people that are into like um, foraging for food, but don't know a lot about medicinal herbs or like homeschool groups or gardener groups um, to, you know, talk about herbs and see someone be like, oh, this, this is like what I'd been drawn to. And maybe they didn't have quite the right uh, introduction to it, you know, that wasn't uh, maybe I think a lot of times people get uh, an introduction to herbalism that's too superficial to be useful you know so like oh here's yarrow you can use yarrow to stop bleeding or to you know like help menstrual problems or to treat fevers and it's just so vague and open-ended um, and what I've always done is spent you know like 20 30 40 minutes maybe an hour you know, per plant and spent a lot more time about per plant, had discussion of like why it works. And, you know, if, if you use it for fever, what type of fever would you use it for? And getting into that, um, that nuanced discussion so that people can uh, say like, oh, I, it makes a lot more sense to say that yarrow is good for fevers where you have poor outward circulation than just it's good for fevers in general, right? Um, and, and to do that with all the different plants that I talk about, um, getting to know the plants on a, a nuanced individual level has always been like the thing that really draws me in and keeps me interested in them. Yeah. So you, I believe you said you were studying music. Is that, yeah, I have that right. And then you fell in love with experimenting with herbs. It, was there a, a point where you decided, okay, I'm going to pursue this now as a profession or have you even decided that yet today or is it just something that um, you just continue to get more teaching opportunities and find more more love for it and you've just continued on with it i think that it might be the the latter like i think that i actually realized that i had become an herbalist after the fact um i remember the first time because i lived in michigan and at the time um there were certainly herbalists in Michigan um, and some, some, some brilliant herbalists, you know, who were doing stuff uh, before I was. There's a guy in Detroit named Gary Wantage. Um, There's a woman in Ann Arbor named uh, Linda Diane Belt. And there was a woman in Ar Ann Arbor named Bronwyn Gates. But Michigan was still like a lot less connected. You know, there were just isolated people kind of doing stuff here and there, as opposed to like the Northeast where like you know, in Vermont, New Hampshire, and upstate New York, there were all these people like interacting and they had an herb association. And so I was doing stuff largely, you know, like in isolation, I would hang out with the uh, guy in Detroit when I could and, you know, pick his brain about stuff and ask him questions. And he was always super great to me. He was probably like the first herbalist that I got to, to interact with. And um, 
But I went maybe like three, three and a half, four years into it, I went down to the United Plant Saver Sanctuary um, in uh, Athens, or I guess just southwest of Athens, Ohio, uh, in Rutland. And I got there and two things happened. Both of them were kind of funny. Um, one is someone said like, oh, you must be Jim McDonald. And I was like, how in the world would they know who I am? That was my split second thought. And then they cracked up and they're like, oh, you're the only guy here. Um, <laughs> so that was, that was kind of funny. Um, and then the other thing is someone said like, oh, are you an herbalist? And I thought about it and I thought like, I pick plants, I make stuff with them, I give them to people. And the answer kind of just has to be yes, right? I mean, it's just like, <laughs> check, like, check, looks check. like a duck, yeah. uh, quacks like a duck, <laughs> does all the stuff the duck see, it must be a duck. And so I was like, yes, I am. And um, I also feel pretty strongly about that too. I think that sometimes within herbalism, um, and again, obviously we don't want people who have like insufficient knowledge recklessly giving out herbs that they you know may be beyond their scope of knowledge but i also feel like sometimes there's kind of this gatekeeping around who gets to be an herbalist um and i've been in groups of people where they're like oh can you believe that person is like teaching herb classes and they've never had any kind of formal study you know or been to any schools and now they're like teaching other people and i'd be like you know that was me who, who did that <laughs> too right um and I think it all depends on, um, you know, like there's just all different kinds of herbalists. So there's, um, you know, clinical herbalists and medical herbalists, maybe like that title, or, um, uh, professional or certified herbalists, which can kind of like run the gamut. And there's master herbalists, which, you know, they can be great or they might have just taken some online two week course, who knows. Um, and I've always just considered myself an herbalist. And I think that as long as I skate, uh, working with people or sharing information within the scope of my experience and don't try and like act like I know stuff that I don't know, then I'm an herbalist. And I feel like everyone should think about it that way. Um, because what I find is there's a lot of people who feel maybe self-conscious and discouraged by, you know, people to be like, oh, you can't say you're an herbalist because you're not this or you're not that. Um, but maybe people, you know, like, you can have like family herbalists and folk herbalists and you know community herbalists and they don't necessarily all the herbalists don't need to be in the same scope of practice you know we need all of them um there's a lot of situations where like if someone had access to an herbalist before having you know needing to see a doctor they might not need to see the doctor and there's also situations where if someone had access to some really pretty simple folk medicine they might not need to go and see some clinical herbalist, you know, because the, the remedies are just, you know, in, in some cases, the remedies are just like simple and they make common sense. And it's a, you know, uh, it's a stereo, I guess a cliche to say this, but it's, it really is a medicine of the people. And I think that we should remember that when we're thinking about who we sort of like encourage or discourage to identify as an herbalist. Have you carved any sort of niche within the herbal world? Um, probably the things that most people would know me for is maybe a few plants. So like, um, I've long been, um, someone who's been fascinated and have a, a great relationship with calamus root. And so there's some people who like find out about calamus root and they find the page on my website about it and they're like, oh my gosh, this is so cool. Um, 
So that's one thing. Um, I've also um, sort of been someone who's introduced the use of New England Aster for um, respiratory and especially for asthma, uh, respiratory issues and asthma, um, which I think is one of the most important respiratory herbs that I use. But in terms of like larger, like broader topics than just individual plants, um, I would say that, let's see, I have a strong um, interest in the, the Greek humoral temperaments as a constitutional model. Um, I feel like uh, it's a really brilliant constitutional model and it's not in any way, because I don't think about things as being better than, or like, if like there's a competition. It's not better than doshas or better than using Chinese elements, but it's just as useful. And sometimes it fits people better. And for me, at least, I feel like I can easily integrate that into the system, you know, the more Western system of herbalism that I'm already utilizing, rather than integrating doshas into the more Western system of herbalism that I'm utilizing, or integrating Chinese elements into the more Western system of herbalism that I'm utilizing. Um, and that's all an outgrowth of a really deep and pervading interest in um, energetic herbalism. So looking at patterns of hot and cold and dry and damp um, and tension and laxity. And that's something that I initially, um, I guess maybe the first place I learned about energetics was from uh, written information on Michael Morris' site, but um, his Morian approach to it, like I just, I still don't quite get that. Um, it was initially when um, I had met Matthew Wood actually at that first trip down to the Plant Saver Sanctuary in Ohio. And he had sent me like a, the working draft of his practice of traditional Western herbalism where he goes through the, the energetic model. Um, and I got that and um, while I, I learned the system from him, I wasn't actually like with him studying with him. It was something like I'd like read through the book and I'd formulate my own ideas and then you know, I might um, email or call him and ask him some questions or when I saw him next, ask him some questions. Um, when I integrated that with the, the temperaments, I've, you know, um, I have a, an energetic system that I use that's really rooted in what Matt teaches, but also like really a little bit unique to, you know, my own takes and inclinations. And that's something that I actually encourage everyone who's learning from uh, a teacher uh, is, you know, like you don't have to have the same conclusions as the person you're learning from. I think that everyone that I've met who's brilliant, who's learned from other people has areas where they're like, oh yes, I learned that from that person and they're so brilliant, except when they said that that's kind of wrong, you know, or maybe it's not wrong, but like, except for that, like, I don't think about it that way. I think about it a different way. And so, um, for someone who's studied with Matt or learned from Matt, who then takes classes with me, they'll they'll notice some differences in language or application or just the way that we would frame the energetic model. But but everything that I'm doing is definitely inspired by what I initially had learned from him. Can you talk a bit about what the Greek humors are and that philosophy? So humoral medicine, we could probably just say is like, um, energetic medicine, looking at patterns of hot and cold and damp and dry. Um, going back to, you know, a more 
pure Greek tradition, they did not include tension and laxity as a part of their energetic structure. Um, there was a different system of uh, Greek medicine that was done by the Methodists, not those Methodists, but um, the Greek Methodists that looked at um, status strictus, which would be tension, or status laxus would be laxity. Um, but uh, humoral medicine had hot and cold and damp and dry. They thought um, all things were composed of the four elements, earth, air, fire, and water. Um, and that those four elements were tied to four humors, which were kind of like metaphorical fluids of the body, you know, and those would be um, blood and yellow bile. It's like bile from your liver gallbladder, um, phlegm or mucus, and then black bile. Uh, black bile is something that doesn't have a physiological correspondent, but even with blood and phlegm and bile, they're not meant to refer to those specific physiological fluids. They're more like metaphors and they get those names because those specific physiological fluids have the most humoral, say like blood, your physical blood has the most humoral blood in it. Your physical phlegm has the most humoral phlegm in it. Your um, physical bile has the most humoral bile in it. And then black bile is like an object of debate and academic uh, dialogue and has been for, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, at that level of Greek medicine or humoral medicine, um, it's really strictly energetics. We're looking at these patterns of hot and cold and damp and dry. Um, but they would say that everyone has this unique humoral makeup when they're born. And if they have, let's say, um, a dominance of, of humoral blood in their constitution, that would lead them towards having a more sanguine temperament, right? So sanguine was associated with blood, the choleric temperament was associated with bile, the phlegmatic temperament was associated with um, phlegm, and the melancholic temperament was associated with black bile. And now all of a sudden this becomes a model that's not just energetic, but goes a little bit outside of our physiological body to cover sort of like our disposition and our behavioral tendencies. And um, this is where I found that it was like a really inspiring to me because for me looking at a, a sanguine and choleric dominant constitution just made more sense than what I could think of myself as using a dosha model right and the elements I've never been good at Chinese elements so I don't have uh, thoughts about myself in that model but I felt like it was just a better fit um, and learning about people's temperament or disposition and inclinations really helps look at uh, the people that I work with um, and people that I people watch in restaurants um, more holistically <laughs> um, because so much of a, a person's physical health has to do with like their lifestyle, right? And their, their disposition. And so like a really good example of this is we live in a, um, a world that is sort of like dominated by and highly values the type A personality, you know, the goers, the doers, the make stuff happens, the people who achieve things. And those are the people we look up to. Um, in fact, we often look up to that more than the quality of their character. Like, oh, someone, they did this. Like, it doesn't matter, you know, whether they were nice or cool or a jerk or whatever, they achieved this thing. Um, the Apple guy, I forget what his name is, is sort of an example like that. Jobs. Yeah. yeah, it doesn't sound like he was like, 
the nicest, kindest, most caring person in the world, or like, you know, who was really mm -hmm. compassionate and empathic and empathetic towards the um, people he interacted with, but he, you know, achieved all this stuff. And so he's like a hero and he gets to be on the cover of magazines and all that. And we seem to give people a people like that who have created and so-called succeeded. We seem to give them a wider margin of error. Like, oh yeah, it was okay that he was a bit of an ass. Look at what he did. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And so um, in humoral temperament um, thinking, we would say that the type A personality really widely intersects with what we would view as a choleric temperament. Choleric people um, are not jerks, right? They're not arrogant. They're not um, domineering unless they're imbalanced, but they are people who are like doers and make things happen. And the choleric temperament arises from the humor of bile and the element of fire and fire transforms things from one thing into another, right? And a way that I would think about the temperaments being like an example of how I think about them being really relevant to my practice of an herbalist is that if you have someone who is a choleric dominant um, temperament and they live in this culture, the culture is looking at them and saying, oh, you're a person who does all the stuff that we value the most. You should do more of it, right? And when they do more of it, they get rewarded for that. And when they get rewarded for that, they do more of it because it becomes just feedback. And they even build up some of their learned sense of self, like who I am is directly associated to what I'm able to do and being rewarded for that. Um, but a, a problem with that is that, you know, it becomes evident if you watch people who are um, doers and achievers that they can become fixated on that at the expense of other things and often their own care. So you have someone who might start to develop health issues as a result of overwork, right? But the way that they respond to feeling like tired or exhausted or fatigued or losing their focus is to work more rather than to say like, oh, the reason I'm feeling like this is because I need a break and I'm not taking a break, right? Someone with a choleric temperament is like, oh, this is an obstacle. I need to overcome this obstacle. I need to fight and beat it and overcome this obstacle. And I'm gonna do that by doing more of what I'm good at, playing to my strength. And that can lead them into this pattern of like burnout and exhaustion. And, uh, you know, so if I recognize that disposition, I can say like, oh, okay, so, you know, not only do I maybe need to treat this like stress and exhaustion um, and I don't need to think about, you know, quote unquote, adrenal herbs. I want to think about things that will balance out their temperament, that will get them to value um, some of the things that maybe are not the first things that they would think about paying attention to, like rest, you know, yes. because choleric people, they want to take ginseng, they want to take rhodiola, they want to take, you know, drink more coffee, they want to take stimulants, they want like, you know, to... Mm -hmm. to take things that are gonna push them through it. And that might actually be aggravating them, even though they'll be like, oh, wow. I remember one person, he was like, I just, you know, I feel like I have to sleep more. And then if I sleep more, I don't get as much done. So like I can take rhodiola and it's like, I can get more <laughs> done and not need to sleep as much. And I'm like, I see the way that you think that this is working out for you, but it's actually <laughs> not working. It's not a good sustainable plan in the wrong, long run to um, not leave you in trouble sort of like down the line. Yeah. This temperament so, is more of what I call the human doings instead of the human beings. They're always doing yeah. and never being. Right. And it's, it's amplified because um, the, at least the North American Western culture, and, you know, I live in America. And so like, it's, it's sort of like the model of what I mean in the Western culture. I realize that there's different Western cultures that are a little bit more chill, 
but the American Western dominant, you know, culture, like I said, really rewards that um, and encourages that and has actually even kind of like made that the norm or the ideal that people should strive for, you know, is like, oh, be like that. That's what's like, if you think about the qualities we associate with success, mm-hmm. those are the qualities that we associate with the collar temperament. And so even framing um, the temperaments and the dispositions that they all individually have and embody, um, we can get this larger look at the culture and say like, oh, wow, you know, um, I like looking at this helps me recognize these larger, larger patterns of imbalance that work on us outside of our individual personal health on a larger like societal scale. So it's become super fascinating to me. And I got interested in it largely because there was this amazing herbalist um, named Christopher Headley. He passed away a, a few years ago, but he was like a, a brilliant and super cool kind of like magical person that was really into it. And he was my first introduction to it. Um, and that's become something that, that yeah, I feel, I, I think about all the time. Mm-hmm. Going back to what you were saying about society or culture being so keen towards the busyness, I, I always find it interesting when people ask, or when you ask someone how they're doing, and they go, busy, busy. Like, and they say it like it's a good thing, although you can tell they're really stressed about it. I go, right. I'm just so busy. And it's like, well, maybe you could try to not be so busy and see how that sits with you. And people will automatically assume, oh, you must be really busy. It's like, well, yeah, I, I try not to be. Perhaps could mm-hmm. be a, a way to look at it rather than, yeah, yeah, I'm so busy. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, when, when we look at it as a more societal current, like everyone is swept up in that current. So like, um, let's see, cholerics, uh, element of fire, fire is hot and dry, right? On the other end of that um, seeming spectrum, because it's really not a polarity or um, a binary thing. But if we look at the, the, the cooler and moister, damper people um, temperament, we have people who are phlegmatic and phlegmatic people are more like empathic, they navigate the world by feeling, um, they're a little bit slower in nature, right? Um, and, uh, you know, you're saying, you know, humans doing and humans being, they're a little bit more the humans being, you know, mm-hmm. temperament. Um, those people are like, kind of not able because of the pace of society to move at their own pace, right? So like, to keep up with the cholerics is a real effort for them. But to keep up with even the middle thing is asking them to go like faster and process faster and like um, move at a pace that's not really sustainable for them. And for a lot of those people, um, they look at themselves and they think like, oh, like I'm tired and I can't keep up and I feel, you know, like I, you know, I can't process fast enough. And they end up thinking that sort of they're, and I'm too sensitive they think that their natural um, disposition, you know, their, their sort of like natural temperament, which is suited for them, that there's something wrong with it because it's not what is taught of as sort of like the societal norm. Mm-hmm. And then there's sanguine people who are like me, who are like, you know, ooh, I'm, I'm like hot and fast and a fast processor, but I'm also like, I don't really have great structure. You know, I'm kind of rambly. I'm like, oh, that over there and that over there and that over there and up there and down there. And, Ooh, squirrel, you know, oh, something <laughs> shiny over there. Um, you know, uh, 
and then melancholic people um, who have a very thoughtful, deeply perceptive um, way of looking at the world. It's like very, very well thought out. And, you know, they have the, the structure, but they mostly impose their structure on themselves rather than feeling like they need to like create a structure that everyone else needs to do. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe the thing that, that I think, and this is not traditional um, humoral thinking, is in traditional humoral thinking, you would look for a dominant or like two dominant um, qualities or temperaments that you could um, assess someone using and think about what they need to do. And I actually think that that's highly flawed um, because what people tend to do is they tend to want to think like, what temperament am I, like me, myself? Um, oh, I'm a sanguine mostly and choleric secondly. Um, I want to learn about sanguine and choleric because that's what I am. Um, but I actually think that it's more important because not everyone quite has that same kind of like ranking first, second, third, fourth. Um, and even if you do, sometimes learning more about what you're strong in isn't what you need to focus on. It's what you're maybe deficient in, you know, and like, oh, you know, like I, I am the least melancholic of all the temperaments. Um, but melancholic is earth, you know, earth is no less important than fire and air and water. Um, it's just as important and it's foundational. So like, are there things that are melancholic practices or um, activities that I could engage in that would actually help to balance out my excess? So rather than reeling in my excess scattered sanguine energy, I would need to both reel in my excesses and compensate for my deficiencies by thinking like, I don't wanna just be less scattered. I also wanna be grounded. You know, I don't wanna to be too airy, but I can't just be less airy. I also had to be more grounded. And so if rather than thinking like, what am I, I'm this and this, you know, sanguine and, and choleric or melancholic and phlegmatic, or, you know, even like choleric and phlegmatic. Um, what I encourage people to think of is in what way am I manifesting each of the elements? And is it balanced? If so, that's awesome. Is it imbalanced? And if so, is it excess in case you want to reel it in or deficient in case you want to build it up? Hmm. It sounds like maybe then your passion for plants and the earth is something that is helping to balance your humors. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and we can think about like there's definitely very like um, marshmallow is a really overtly moistening herb, you know, so it's like, oh, that herb itself is more moist and um, nourishing. And we might think about that as being really important for someone who's choleric, you know, that choleric person who's overworking is often like considered to be energetically hot, and dry. Um, they don't just need nervings. They don't just need things that are relaxant. They also need things to sort of like balance out their dryness and um, cool down their heat. And so we can look at how uh, it's not just the activities, but the use of herbs as well to help to balance out temperament. And when we think about um, disposition and inclinations, we often think about herbs that just affect the, the mind and the emotions we might also think that like, oh, you know, demulsive herbs like violet or marshmallow, they're moistening to tissues, but they're also just kind of soothing in general. And that can have an effect on the mental state as well. Very cool. Thank you for that overview yeah. of the Greek humors. That's something that I've, I've dabbled in very little bit, but it's,
it's good to hear that sort of description for them. Tell me a bit about what Herbcraft is. So my website is herbcraft.org. My website that I'm going to get commercial for a second. My website that sells classes is herbcraft.podia.com. And I was, you know, I needed to crumble with a website um, that I could list my classes on, you know, because prior to that, I was doing the thing where you go to health food stores and co-ops and put up little flyers, you know, with little pull tabs with your phone number on them. <laughs> Wait, you don't and still you, do that? <laughs> no, I don't do, still do that anymore. You know, it never actually, I don't live in a super hip city or a super hip part of Michigan. Um, and so I would like do the, I would drive around for like two hours and put all these up and then I would go back and there'd be like, you know, some real estate agent's face over my, my flyer request <laughs> that I was doing. It was always very frustrating. I'm like, how long was that even visible? And why can real estate people put their flyers up over my relevant flyer at the food co-op? Um, <laughs> but I'm not bitter about that. Um, <laughs> so I, I needed to come up with a website, you know, that I could list stuff on because this internet thing seemed like it was going to take off. Um, and I had to think of an address. And I, you know, I guess I could have come up with like Jim McDonald um, or Michigan Herbalist, but uh, I liked Herbcraft. And it wasn't taken. You know, that was another thing. A bunch of yeah. things were taken. I think there's a, a British soap opera star named Jim McDonald that that might have been already, <laughs> already used. And uh, I just like the word herbcraft. You know, um, I like herbalism. I like herbcraft. I'm not really a fan of herbology. If other people like it, that's cool. But it sounds a little bit like too complicated for my tastes. Um, I think... You know, I probably just picked it up from from reading books, uh, but also it might have been, you know, um, that's one of the, the the subtitles of Dale Pendle's Pharmacopoeia book, um, and I just liked it, and it was easy, um, it was short, and you know, uh, I chose that, and I I also still think, you know, as much um, nuance and science there is to herbalism. I do think about it very much like a craft with a lot of creative and artistic expression in it. And I know that when I, um, one of the things I, I really like the most is I like other people's formulas, especially if they're formulas from people who are using stuff that they collect or that they have a relationship with. Um, because it gives me this little window into their sort of creative process about how they put things together, you know. And that makes me think sometimes like, oh, wow, I never would have thought of putting that together with that and that. Um, and other times it makes me scratch my head and think like, why would they have put that together with that and that? Um, and it all gets me uh, thinking about stuff and you know, um, viewing it as uh, so strongly, viewing herbalism and herbcraft as being so strongly in uh, a creative and artistic endeavor, I think helps me keep my knowledge and understanding about it very open-ended so that I think about it as a continually, a continual learning process and not something like, this is something that I'm going to learn until I understand the principle. And once I understand the principle, I will know the thing, right? Um, which is, is not how I think about stuff. Um, obviously there's stuff that I've learned and I feel you know, um, pretty confident that tannins are astringent. Um, but when I think about astringency, I think like I'm probably going to be learning nuances of astringency for the rest of my life. And I find that so exciting. <laughs> so what do you do through Herbcraft and Herbcraft Podium? 
So the Herbcraft site is just my website. There's a bunch of like free information there. I want to warn people that it's an old website. It's built on like uh, Microsoft front page 2003. <laughs> so it's, it's a little bit archaic. I know I totally understand. And I empathize with people trying to look at it on a phone. Um, it's not <laughs> great on phones. Um, there are some formatting issues as that medium becomes uh, uh, more and more outdated where sometimes the font sizes aren't as good. But if you have, you know, a tablet or a PC uh, or a Mac, you know, like a, an actual full screen size thing, um, there's, I'm pretty sure there's like hundreds of pages of, of written information on plants and written information on sinusitis and treating back injuries. There's some links to videos uh, that I have up on YouTube. Uh, and that's where all the free stuff is. And that's where all of my in-person classes are listed. So if you live or can travel to um, Michigan or I also, well, not right now, but hopefully I'll get to being able to travel back to different parts of the country to teach for weekends. Um, all of those in-person classes, if you can come and be in the same room with me classes are listed there. And the herbcraft.podia, and that's P-O-D-I-A, com site has all of like the online classes and courses um, that I'm offering because as much as I really love being able to be in the room with people um, and see people obviously not everyone can you know make it out to where I'm going to be even if I'm traveling and um, it's the the place that I'm offering you know things that are either pre-recorded and you can get to watch and read and listen to um, or things that are offered uh, that are live streams. Um, and that just seems like something I want to do both to make my classes more accessible and my teachings more accessible, but also because um, when you're only, I get you know, practical business things. Um, I'm an herbalist. I've chosen um, uh, maybe not the most practical of professions, and when I'm only generating income, when I, my body is actually somewhere, you know, doing something, it's just, it's part of that, uh, that keeping the busy thing that we were talking about. Like, oh, yeah. how are you busy, busy? I'm, I'm traveling all over, I'm driving all over, I'm teaching here and there and there and, you know, crisscrossing the state of Michigan, then flying out to Washington state and then down to Colorado, you know, um, that I wanted to, uh, you know, have an ability to, to not think like, I have to be this busy in order to like, you know, feed my children, you know, it's yeah. like, oh, you know, someone bought a course that they can watch and enjoy and learn from. And I didn't need to like run all over. I already did the running. Um, so all of that uh, class material is there and there's a free class up there. And for the, there's a bunch of plant walks there. Um, the plant walks all have a free video. So there's still some free content there, but uh, largely like that's my uh, make a living site. And the other site is my offerings to the world site. Great. Thank you for that. I have kids too. So I always love to talk to people about fatherhood. Can you talk yeah. a bit about that experience for you? It's, it's pretty awesome. Uh, my kids are, are great and they're, you know, people always ask, and I'm sure that you get this too, like, oh, your kid's going to be herbalist. I'm like, I don't know. I'm not trying, I'm trying to do the not push my kid into doing what I do thing, <laughs> you know, and on, an, on another end, like if my kids were to go into some very lucrative career and be able to take care of me in my, my retirement, I wouldn't complain about that either. <laughs> um, that would be okay. I think I could, I could handle that. Uh, but it's really like, 
you know, people will say like, oh, is your like major passion in life plants and herbalism? And like my major passion in life is like my wife and my kids and my family. That's my major passion. And then herbalism is just like a big part of that. Um, and I guess in some way, I don't think, you know, like herbalism is nature and my family are nature. It's all really tied together, but I can't rank stuff like that. Um, but it has helped me in a lot of ways. I, I know that like uh, another area that I have a, a keen interest in is like teaching about and understanding fever and, um, you know, and, and knowing about like what it's like to be a parent who has a feverish child, you know, and trying to be like, oh, but I'm looking at the, the thermometer, but I'm looking at the thermometer and it says this and that number is scary and I'm uncertain. Um, and, you know, or like my kid, you know, has this cough or has this. And so like, although I don't think about myself as a, a pediatric herbalist, um, I think that pretty, I, like I know how to treat kids. Like that's always integrated into all the other stuff I do is I, I know, and I know that because I've had kids and, you know, it's not like we won't ever take them to see a doctor for something. Um, but a lot of times I don't need to because, you know, I know, you know, what tea to make or what thing to drink. And um, two of my kids are really pretty good about it. One of my children is just like, no, I don't want to. No, I don't want to. No, I don't want to. <laughs> and that, of course, is my third um, and, and youngest child, my daughter. Um, God, even things that are good. Like, no, this is this is elderberry syrup. You'll really like it. Like, no, I don't want to. It's like, ah. And I think that that was maybe like, you know, uh, herbalists who have kids, you know, that, that take stuff will say things like, oh, if you get them used to it and it's just a part of their life, you like, they'll be, you know, cooperative with it. And, you know, it's like, yeah, until there's one that's not. <laughs> I, I will say one time I was talking with someone and they were talking about like, giving stuff to their kid and their kid didn't want to take it. And I, I still think that this holds up a lot of the time is like, give herbs kids with confidence. Don't be, and I know that people listening can't see me right now. I'm holding up a teaspoon because I always have props in front of me when I'm, when I'm teaching. I never know when I might need like a koosh ball or a loofah sponge <laughs> or some animal balloons. I'm just held up all those, but I have a teaspoon in front of me. I'm holding up a teaspoon and I'm making a uncertain, I don't know if I'm sure this is going to work or you'll do this face. Like you don't want to have that be your face when you're giving herbs to kids. You want to have like, you know, like you try some and then they try some, you know, or to be honest with them, be like, you know what? This is going to be nasty. <laughs> like, I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to tell you it's not so bad because it's actually pretty bad tasting and you shouldn't when you're saying something's pretty bad tasting you shouldn't use your like i've tried root tincture undiluted face you should have a like a kid's just not going to like this because it tastes a little bit weird face um to to be like you know you get a chaser chasers are great you know reward chasers i'm not above using reward chasers um with kids but uh yeah they 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 teach you so much and also um this isn't necessarily related to fatherhood and everything, but one time, one of the things that I try a lot to do in my teaching is um, I, don't, I don't learn best by, um, and I don't really care to use a lot of highly specialized language 
in my teaching when I can say something in plain English, right? You know, so if, if I don't have to use a big word that not so many people know, I try not to use it. I use a word that other people know. Or if I use a, a word that people don't know, I try to then say it in the way that they do know. And uh, one time I was teaching a, a class on sort of like immune function. It was a series of five classes on fevers and coughs and head colds and strengthening and defending your immune system. And uh, in, in the class, which was a mixed group, um, it was an open community class, there was an RN who was in the class and there was, I think a 14 year old. And maybe like after the third class, I got an email from both the RN and another email from the 14 year old. And both of them were saying like, I really love this class and I love how you're explaining things. It really makes me get it. And um, that's, I, I'm saying that's one of my happiest teaching moments mm -hmm. because I think that there's this idea that if you're saying, if you're teaching or speaking in language that a 14 year old can understand, then a professional RN would find that underwhelming and not really helpful, right? And if you're speaking in language that an RN could understand, it would obviously be way over the head of a 14 year old. And I just don't really find that to be true. Um, I find that, uh, you know, what I try and do um, and the kind of teacher, I guess, that I'm, you know, uh, I am and the kind of students who would best learn from me is that uh, for people who learn the way that I teach, you know, and so like, if someone reads the stuff that I've written and they watch the stuff that I do and they're like, you know, I wonder if I would like a class of theirs, probably the answer would be like, yes. And if someone were to, you know, watch the stuff that I do and be like, well, that's not advanced enough because I'm not using big words. I'd be like, okay, you know, that's fine. Maybe you don't need to be the person to learn from me. And I don't feel like offended or put off by that, you know? Um, but I do think that like, um, I like the idea of like, the gist is more important than, than all the fine details and how to spell all the names and getting all of the pathophysiology right. And that's why I'm, you know, a little bit more of a, I, I tend to tell people I'm more of like a folk herbalist than a clinical herbalist. Um, obviously I work with people, I do clinical work. I don't love the word clinical, um, but uh, you know, whether I'm working with my children or whether I'm working with a client, what I wanna do is explain the rationale of what I'm doing in plain English so that they get it. And the language that is the most accessible to me achieves that end the best. And I feel like when people understand why you're asking them to do something, they're more likely to follow through with it, especially if it's something that doesn't have like an immediate payoff, you know? Like yeah. if, if you put aloe on a burn and it's soothing right away, it's really easy to be like, oh, I'm gonna put aloe in that burn. If you're taking like, a, you know, a decoction of burdock and, you know, yellow dock and, you know, some other, you know, roots that maybe are not horrible tasting, but not like conventional, super yummy um, for eczema. And it's going to be like something you need to do for like a bunch of, you know, weeks and months. Uh, if people don't have an understanding of why it makes sense to do that, that they understand, you know, not just because the herbalist said like, oh, this is what you have to do, but you can basically explain to them in language that they understand why it makes sense, they'll more likely like stick with that um, for the length of time it's going to take to have uh, an effect uh, mm -hmm. and not be discouraged because, you know, they've had eczema for 30 years and, you know, 
they've drank the tea for a week and they can't tell a miraculous difference. <laughs> On the topic of language and, and simple language, do you learn directly from, I'll call it the language of the plants? Um, yeah, I'm not like a, a great visualizer, you know? So I know if when, when some people think about the language of the plants, they think about, you know, like the plant comes to you and it like looks like a person and, you know, has like mossy hair and, you know, <laughs> tells you something profound. Um, I, I, I won't say that's never happened to me, but that's not the primary way that I, I've done it. You know, like I've been someone who maybe more like gets an impression from something and increasingly, um, over the years that, that I've uh, learned about plants, I really think that like the language of plants is the way that the plant expresses itself in its physical world, you know? So sometimes people have this idea that it's like a profoundly spiritual experience to have the plant appear to you as a person and tell you this thing in English using words, you know? Oh, the plant came to me and it looked like this and it said to me this and I was like, ah, oh, it's amazing. <laughs> And I think the plant in its most profoundly spiritual existence is the plant as it exists in the world, right? And it's not more spiritual that looks like a human. I know that, you know, some people, I'm not saying it's less spiritual, but I don't think it's more spiritual. Um, but I think the language of plants is in the, um, the, the habitats that it, the plant grows in and, you know, like the soil types it prefers and you know what it tastes like and what it smells like and the, the the other plants that it grows around and the habit that it grows in and so for me um to really understand the plant and the reason that i mostly use bioregional herbs is that like i feel like when i have a connection to all of those things i have the clearest path to being able to understand that plant's sort of like essence or spirit or um, virtues, I think is a traditional word that it really captures plant uh, medicine well. Um, and it's a little bit like become that, you know, like the, the more popular language of plants or plants talking to you and using words and sentences isn't something that's not important, but it's not more important, you know, like to mm -hmm. me, like having that connection with the plant. And I, I use ashwagandha, which I've never, I've seen the plant, but I've never seen it in the wild. Um, I absolutely love and adore um, kava kava, which I've not been able to see the plant in the wild, although I have gotten fresh roots. And I guess the other thing, um, and maybe this goes back earlier, I had mentioned calamus, uh, as being something that you know, some people know me specifically by my writings on calamus. Is when I was very first learning about herbs. Um, for some reason or another, I uh, I got some calamus root, and I had learned about chewing calamus root, which is still the primary way that I use it. I don't even think I have a tincture of calamus uh, in in the house or have for a decade. Um, so I pretty much primarily use that herb by chewing it. And when I was first learning about it. Um, this was pre-internet days. And so I had just like some vague, you know, like paragraph long entries in herb books. If I was lucky a paragraph, but often like, you know, calamus is a carminative and used for digestion and, you know, maybe good for sore throats or restoring the voice. So it was usually that was as much as I could find about it. Uh, but I was intrigued by calamus. I got some calamus root and I chewed on some. And I remember like, I started thinking like, 
do I feel a bit different now? Like, do I feel like, and I know that some people will be like, yes, because calamus is you know, like a hallucinogen or it's psychoactive and, you know, like, yeah, kind of, but not, not like peyote, not like mushrooms. But I, chew in a little, I feel like a little bit different. And um, what I really learned from that plant, and this is early in my learning about herbs, was like another way to learn about or to listen up to plants is to like sit with yourself and see how you feel and feel how you feel for a little while and then ingest some of the plants. So that could be chewing it, it could be making tea, it could be taking tinctures, it could be just sitting with it in the wild, um, nibbling on leaves or just sitting with it. And then start to like really be open-mindedly think like what's different, like what's changed, what has, like what do I feel after, you know, consuming or being with this plant that has shifted. And as you learn that, you'll start to be able to pick up on subtler and subtler changes. Like um, one of the exercises, again, that I learned um, from Christopher Headley, the herbalist uh, who used to live in London, who I learned about temperaments from, was this uh, tea tasting uh, technique where basically you do a blind tea tasting. And the way that I learned it from him is you just let people sit with a, a cup of tea and smell it for like, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes. And then you let them take a sip, one sip. And then after a little while, you let them, you know, sip as much as they want to or not sip anymore if they don't like it. And then you collect information. You just let them say like what they're feeling and not guessing at what the plant is, right? That's what a lot of people want to do because we're just sort of trained to like, I want to prove that I know something. Um, or not, you know, that the plant is an adaptogen or astringent, but really just saying like, my mouth is dry, my eyes are watering, my stomach is gurgling, just recognizing the physical changes, right? Some of those may be relevant, some of those might be because you drank coffee like, you know, the half hour earlier. Um, but when you have a group of people and they do a tea tasting exercise like this, you can really get the most amazing information about the plants that's coming directly from the plants. And I've seen like my little jotted notes of people's observations um, for some herbs be better than I can find written down in any book ever, like definitely, I have a, a clearer like uh, understanding of like all of the different ways than Dom, that Damiana works from doing this with Damiana than I've ever seen written down anywhere ever. You know, we don't generally think about, you know, Damiana as a digestive plant or as a respiratory plant. You know, we just have like, oh, Damiana is that aphrodisiac herb, you know, maybe if we're a little bit um, more nuanced that it's a, a, a nervine tonic. Um, but uh, I think that that process, whether you're doing it with a group or whether you're just doing it with yourself, obviously if it's with yourself, you know what the plant is. And one of the dangers, not a danger, but of knowing what the plant is, is that you think about all the stuff you know about it already and you look for that, right? And so going back to the Damiana example is when I do this thing with Damiana and a bunch of people don't know that it's Damiana, they're not looking for like, oh, this is an aphrodisiac. And so I'm going to be like, you know, I feel turned on or, you know, I feel like my sensation is a lot more expressive, um, which is what will happen, uh, you know, when uh, my libido is, is stimulated. When you know about stuff, you think about like what it does and then look for that. So, um, you know, doing that with plants, I'm just learning has helped. And then there's other times when I've tried to do that and I, I just come up with, you know, not much. <laughs> I tried to, to use that technique to get a really profound understanding of Virginia creeper. And I, I can't say I know a whole lot more 
uh, now than I did before I started. And maybe it's because this technique is a little bit harder for things that sort of like take weeks and months to manifest their, manifest their virtues. You know, like even mm -hmm. though I like to do this exercise for like an hour or two, ideally, um, that's not enough to really get like the sort of like, you know, um, longer overarching qualities that some of these plants have. Yeah. Yeah. Can you talk a bit, uh, before we finish up here about your practice, your, as you said, you don't like the word clinical practice about, yeah. about, about that side of herbalism for you. Well, so I, I will say that one of the things that I've focused on, um, is teaching more so than um, clinical practice or work with people. And um, for, for better or worse, a lot of the work with clients, we can't really say patients here, but work with clients that I've done is um, been a lot more informal, you know? So like I've done a lot of like, you know, how many years have I been doing this? Like 20 some odd years. I don't know if it's getting on like 25 years or something like that. Um, you know, and obviously some of that was my baby herbalist era, you know, where I wasn't like got into herbs and a year later doing consults with people. That's actually something that came out of teaching for me. And again, this goes back to like, people were like, oh, I can't believe this person doesn't know anything. It doesn't have any training. And then they're teaching or they're doing consults. But um, what happened is I started teaching classes. People, of course, they asked me questions during class. And so what initially happened when I, you know, didn't know as much as I would like offer some ideas or very often say, I don't know in class. Um, and then it became, I don't know, let me look into it. And then I'll like follow up with you, send me an email or I don't know, like I, I have an idea, but it's, it's a little bit more than I can say during class. Let's talk after class or send me an email and let's talk, or then let's get together and talk about it. And then like, okay, well, we really need to talk for a length of time about this. So let's schedule a time we can get together and talk about this. And that's how consults, um, that, I mean, that's how I grew into doing consults with people. And at a certain point in time, I decided that I wasn't gonna call them um, consultations, um, that I wanted to call them personal wellness classes because I was a little bit less interested in framing everything as like, you come to me and I'll tell you what to do and more and more interested in framing things as, um, oh, there's something that you wanna learn about, like that's a specific topic that, you know, I'm not necessarily gonna do like a whole class on your particular issue, but like, why don't you come and we'll talk about it and you tell me what's going on with you and I'll tell you what I think about it. And then if you want to apply what I think about it, you can do that. And if you wanna apply like, 10% of what I think about it, then you can do that too. And, you know, it's really um, client motivated instead of like a client led kind of uh, approach. And so I've continued to do that, um, tried to do that uh, when I needed to, but like also going back to earlier, um, because I also teach, because I also wildcraft, because I also make pretty much all this stuff that, that I use in practice uh, as much as possible, not so much the dried herbs, but like the tinctures and oils and salves and syrups. Um, what I found is that uh, I got into a position where like there were more people who wanted to do consults with me than I would keep up with. And because I was not good at saying like, no, sorry, can't, can't talk to you, can't see you. I'd be like, wow, I'm really busy, but I'll try and make things work. And then I got this big backlog 
of people, you know, who felt like um, hopeful or maybe unfortunately in some cases like disappointed, you know, because they had hoped when I said that like I'll try and make it work that it would work, you know. And um, I was digging myself deeper in the hole. And so then I put myself on a hiatus of consults until I could sort of like catch up with where things were at. Um, and up until very recently, um, just until this pandemic, I, like pretty much everything I did was in person. Like I really felt like I wanted to and still prefer to like be in a space with someone at least for the initial consult so that I could do the kind of observation, you know, and like just sort of sitting and again, feeling, um, oh, here I am, this is how I felt. Now this person came in, like, what am I noticing is changing? Same thing with the herbs, with the person, um, you know, what am I noticing in little behavioral things that are just, you know, not, I, I know that a lot of people are doing, uh, not Skype anymore, but like these online Zoom consults, you know, like I would think about, you know, being in classes where I get to sit with someone and be like, you know, are they fidgeting that I might not be able to see if I'm just looking with that, you know, are they like shifting? Um, but now things being as they are, um, I will, as I'm able and as I have time, um, do phone consults with people um, or distance consults with people. Whereas before I would try to only do that if it was something like I don't want to say more superficial, but like less complicated. So if someone said like, oh, you know, I want to do a distance consult with you because I don't live anywhere near you. I say I live in France or something. Um, but I have like a thyroid disorder and multiple chemical sensitivities and, you know, like cancer and, you know, all of these like really, really big things. I always felt like that for me was a little bit more challenging to, um, to address without, uh, or maybe to the level that I felt like I wanted to without being in the same place with the person. Um, so now I'm sort of navigating, um, you know, when I'm the right fit for someone also. Um, there are absolutely um, clinical herbalists with more comprehensive knowledge than I possess. Like that's just, I, I think that uh, in specific, uh, applications that's true for everyone you know but when I think about myself I think about like oh there's you know certain areas that um, I feel are really like my my strong suits and my skill sets and other areas that like I find a little bit more challenging and I think that some people handle them better for me so normally if someone you know contacts me what I initially ask them is like can you send me like a thumbnail sketch of what's going on with you and you know what you would like to talk about. And the first step that I think of is like, am I the right person to address this? You know, um, and if I'm, if I am, then okay, let's move on to like scheduling when we can talk. If I'm not, who do I know that might be a good fit for that? I'm really happy to refer out to people who are better at complicated stuff than I am. Um, one of the areas that that I really love working with, um, and it's always funny when herbalists say they love working with some illness. Um, but I really, I, I love a lot of, uh, like musculoskeletal structural work, uh, and like back and joint injuries. Um, I feel like that's one area that I maybe, um, God, it feels arrogant to say uniquely insightful, but I feel like I'm pretty good. <laughs> uh, I feel like I've got a, a pretty good handle on that. And that's also something I think that, um, one of the areas that I feel more comfortable doing like uh, distance work with people because it's like, you know, 
not necessarily as uh, complicated. There's one thing that um, is a big part of working with clients that is maybe not my favorite or strong suit, which is like being the motivator for someone. Like, you know, there's sort of like the whole like herbalist as coach, herbalist as health coach or being, people being health coaches. And it's not that I, I can't or don't do that, but understanding myself is like, I'm a little bit of an unstructured scatterbrain, you know, like an herbalist. I think that I'm good at what I do. I think that what I teach is solid knowledge, but I also do know that I'm an unstructured scatterbrain that um, for me to be the structure for someone else is maybe not the promise that I should be making, you know? <laughs> and so that's why I reframed everything as personal wellness classes. And like, I'm here to teach you and give you insights, but I really want, you know, for people to be, I think all herbalists want, but I really want for people to be like their own motivation. Right. It's good to know our limitations, Jim. Yeah. So I've really enjoyed this. We've given some places, websites, you have herbcraft.org and herbcraft.podia.com. Are there any other coordinates you want to give people for connecting with you and what you do? I think those two will cover all the bases. Um, For people that just want to like, um, lose a couple hours on YouTube. There is a YouTube channel that I have, but I don't know. It's like YouTube slash who knows whatever. But if you type in Jim McDonald Herbalist YouTube um, into YouTube, you'll find stuff. Um, like I said, if you just type in Jim McDonald into YouTube, you'll find the British soap opera guy. Um, we don't <laughs> seem to be very much alike. There's also a James McDonald who um, was a UFO researcher and who might have been taken out by the... Um, the government because he knew too much, but um, I'm I'm not that Jim McDonald. <laughs> Whatever anyone says, that's not me. I'm not in hiding. <laughs> Jim McDonald, herbalist. Got it. Herbalist. Put yeah. that in the show notes. Well, look, I'm definitely remiss that we're not doing video on this one after you've shown me your list of props that are in front of you. But just for the sake of humoring me, of the loofah, the kush ball, and the balloons for balloon animals, what were you potentially going to do with those during this interview? Okay, so I'm going to do because it's one of my favorite. Um, it's one of my favorites because I talked about it for years before I actually got the balloons. Um, so here's uh, an animal balloon. It's a long, skinny, narrow animal balloon, right? Yeah. You ever tried to blow one of these up? I hate blowing up balloons. Something pops in my jaw and it, okay. it drives They're me They're really hard to blow up, right? It takes, sometimes you like, uh, I guess you go to um, balloon animal school training to learn to, <laughs> to do it. But if I just um, blow into this, so I'm blowing pretty hard. It's not blowing up. Like it's, it's right. kind of inflating, but it's not blowing up the way that they blow up. Yeah. And then I have another one. And this balloon animal has a section that's been blown up before, but only mm. a small section, right? So if I blow really hard into this one, so now we have a little section of this blown up. And um, one of the things that I use this for, the thing I most commonly use this for is to say like, oh, let's think about your blood vessels having a certain level of elasticity, right? Like they, they, um, they pulp, they, they pulse, they pump, and they go back to shape. But if you have like a varicose vein or a mm-hmm. hemorrhoid, right? Where a part of the blood vessel loses tone, it basically blows up, 
like this one little, let's say um, for people who aren't looking, it looks like a string, you know, a, a skinny balloon with almost like an egg in the middle, a blown up area. And maybe yes. that is your varicose vein. Maybe that's your hemorrhoid. Right now, if you were in class with me, I would get up, I would string this up around my butt. I would bend over. I would carry <laughs> my blown up piece of balloon. Um, and I'd be like, see like this. It's always good because people laugh, right? Um, but it's not just that it's funny and people laugh, it's that no one will ever forget it and it carries the idea. <laughs> so not only um, if we, I'm slowly deflating it. So we, let's say use an astringent um, or a vascular astringent, maybe something like stone root or yarrow or blueberry leaf or all those three of those together. And then we restore tone to that area of the blood vessel. But oftentimes, when a tissue has become weak and it's lost its tone, particularly if it's happened a couple times, that area remains weak. So while this unblown up balloon, I can blow into and not get it to blow up. The one that's been blown up previously is more likely to blow up easier in that area. And yes. the idea of understanding that there is like, when an area lo loses tone, it may become a weak spot that is prone to lose tone again because the tissues have always been the, they, you know, I know we like to say like we resolve a condition, but sometimes when we resolve a condition, it's not like we resolve it like it never happened before, right? So mm -hmm. um, if you had hemorrhoids once and then you take stuff and then they get better and you're like, this is the greatest stuff, your, your blueberry stone root um, Yara formula worked wonderful, I'm raving about it. And then, you know, later on, you're like, you know, months, years later, you're like, oh, no, it happened again. And then, you know, you take the stuff again. It might be that like, oh, if something becomes a recurring issue, you know that there's an area in your body that has a weak or a susceptible spot. And we might need to like maintain maybe not the full protocol you did when it was flared up, but some kind of ongoing protocol um, to maintain that area so that it doesn't flare up. Awesome. Thank you for that wonderful use of your props and description of your props. Thank you, sir. I really enjoyed yeah, this. It was, yeah, it was really wonderful chatting with you. Maybe someday I'll be able to go to Canada and we'll cross paths. Well, as soon as we're able to travel again, if you want to make a trip out this way and teach for us, we'd love to have you. Oh, yay. That would be cool. I have a yeah. passport. I need to use it before I have to... <laughs> By anyone <laughs> sounds good well let's let's wait till borders open up and then we'll we'll set something up okay cool thank you all for listening um to my rambles i hope you're all doing well and being well and continue to do so thanks jim i appreciate it all right farewell thanks for listening to this episode of pacific rim college radio with jim mcdonald for more about Jim and his herbal teaching and practice, please visit his websites, herbcraft.org, that's H-E-R-B-C-R-A-F-T.org, and herbcraft.podia.com, podia spelled P-O-D-I-A. If you are interested in studying Western Herbal Medicine, the School of Western Herbal Medicine at Pacific Rim College offers world-renowned programs, including world's only study options combining Western Herbal Medicine with acupuncture and holistic nutrition. Visit PacificRimCollege.com to learn more. Also, don't forget to check out our online education in herbal medicine by exploring the amazing course offerings at PacificRimCollege.online.
including many courses featuring other guests of this podcast. Sign up for our newsletter to receive special offers on our newest releases. If you are interested in receiving clinical services in herbal medicine, holistic nutrition, and acupuncture and Chinese medicine, the student clinic at PRC provides more than 7,000 annual treatments. Live holistic nutrition and herbal medicine consultations are both available online, while acupuncture and Chinese medicine treatments can be had at our Victoria campus. Free treatment options are available in all areas. Visit the student clinic at pacificrimcollege.com for more information and to book your appointment. If you enjoyed this podcast, share it with your friends and family and give it a five-star rating on whatever podcast app you are using. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, take a stroll in nature and let plants be your teacher.